Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is being recorded live on Skype, November 9th, 2019. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. So it's a morning show, but our usual UK morning show guests are at a show this week, which had to happen eventually. But I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I haven't had a chance to chat with yet, Andrew Chia, who is a regular poster on the Model Rail Radio Facebook group. So, Andrew, how did you get interested in model railroading? Well, I have been a model railroader since I could uh, remember. I, I think my first train set was gifted to me by my mother. It was a, a old pre-war Lionel Hudson, mm. and uh, I, uh, I gradually became a uh, a, a, a HO scale modeler and uh, was let's, a let's member. Let's talk about that initial yeah. gift first, because that's such a sure. beautiful, iconic locomotive. Was this something that your mother had inherited? Was this something that she picked up in a secondhand store? How did she actually get that locomotive? You know, I'm not really sure, but I, I I remember her telling me that she picked it up at a store in San Diego. I, I don't mm. know if it's even still there. That was called uh, Frank the Train Man, and uh, an iconic store that had been there since the 30s or 40s. And uh, uh, I I remember going in there as a kid, and I I haven't been back in a long time, so I need to check it out. Interesting. Well, it might still be there. The the train fraternity in San Diego is pretty strong. So yeah, but I I yeah. Interesting. So your mother picked it up secondhand and she gave it to you. Did she have any back? I mean, did any, were there any model railroaders in your family prior to you? No, not that I'm aware of. I know my, my grandfather was a, uh, an electronics whiz, uh, but uh, I don't think he ever dabbled in uh, model rail, model railroading, but he was a, uh, a radio operator. Hmm. So, wow. So your mother just by chance was walking past, and I guess the store itself must have recommended the locomotive to her i mean it might be quite expensive it's one of these classic train store situations where mother comes in train store person sells most expensive thing in the store basically well probably not but anyway interesting anyway continue with your story sorry well yeah as a uh, as a kid i i was a, a young member of the uh, san diego model railroad museum clubs uh the san diego model railroad club and and the la mesa club both uh and uh you know eventually my teen years hit and i uh, I moved off to uh, to Texas and uh, kind of dropped the hobby for a while. It was always in the back of my mind. And I always enjoyed it, but uh, you know, college and and whatnot got in the way, and cars and all that sort of thing. Um, and about and about four or five years awakened my interest in the hobby. And uh, I live in L.A. now, and uh, I'm a member of the Great Pasadena Model Railroad Club, and I'm also Ooh. the director. Yeah, <laughs> I'm also the director of the uh, uh, Southern California. Attraction Club. I'm a attraction and a mainline model player. Interesting. So let's talk about the Pasadena Club. I'm going to be spending some quality time in LA, actually Orange County and LA next year. I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time down there. What day, what evening would I stop by? Is it like a once a month thing? When is the Pasadena Club open to the general public? Well, uh, you know, for interested modelers, they're welcome to drop by any time that we're there. We're, we have uh, work sessions on Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, we we show up on uh, on Saturdays, and uh, the uh, the run days uh, we have uh, usually. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly, there's a, a a couple of Saturdays and a couple of Tuesdays that we uh, that we meet up to actually operate, and then we have an open house coming up actually in in December on the mm-hmm. 14th and 15th. Uh, we have a, a big open house where it's op- we're totally open to the public, uh, you know, activities for the kids and all kinds of other stuff. Interesting, Andrew. How long have you been a member of the Pasadena Club? 
I am actually one of their newest members. I, oh. I've been active there, I guess, now for about maybe six to eight months. Uh, but uh, there's a process to become a member where you, know, you have to put in a certain number of hours and such. And then uh, you're, uh, you're voted in. And uh, so I, I was voted in, I think, about three months ago now. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun club, great guys, uh, and an absolutely breathtaking layout. I think it's one of the largest in the world. Certainly. Yeah, no, that's, that was the reason for my gasping. Do you have any, I mean, can you even estimate the stats? Is that part of your being dropped into the street gang that is the Pasadena <laughs> Club? Do you, do you need to know all the metrics? How, I mean, I, can you I, estimate I, how big the layout is? Well, I, I remember hearing one of the guys saying that if our main line was an actual full-size main line, you know, stretched 87 mm-hmm. times, that it would stretch from downtown LA to San Dimas, which is quite a stretch. Um, mm. it's that long. It takes a good couple of hours to run a train from one end of the layout to the other. It's mm. a point to point, not a loop. You couldn't possibly loop on it. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely huge. <laughs> so and that, it's all, all hand laid track. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I've seen video footage of it in multiple and it's, how long has it been around for? It's a 1950s era starting club, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Uh, I, th- I want to say the club has been around since the 30s or 40s, Gosh. and it's it's its third or fourth inca- incarnation in different locations. You know, the typical model railroad problem where you build it in a, a spot <laughs> that eventually you lose your lease on, and and so it goes. Well, this time they've they've bought the building, and I think they started on this one in the 70s or mm. early 80s, and uh, it's it's basically done at this point. Uh, they've recently been going through a giant DCC conversion, and uh, everything's now DCC, and they've been changing out the old uh, World War II era electronics on it. Mm. They had uh, old uh, snap relays and things that were, uh, from what I gather, old airplane surplus. Gosh. Uh, but I've been changing all that out to a LCC system with mm-hmm. uh, the Tortoise uh, slow motion switch machines. And uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been, I guess, kind of joining the modern era. Uh, but the uh, the layout is, is more or less set, I would guess. Uh, if I had to look for a, an era, I think it's kind of set in the 50s. But uh, uh, it's it's not the uh, picky club, and that you can run whatever you bring, uh, as long as it passes standards, wow. it, it you run. Wow, very interesting. So joining this kind of club with this kind of history, I mean, you you have access to probably some of the brightest minds in model railroading in your area through this club. Like, what kind of things have you learnt having joined the club? I mean, I appreciate the jump in nature of joining one of these clubs particularly associated with, like, you've got to check every truck on everything and you've got to work out that everything has to be standard and all this kind of stuff. And obviously the requirements associated with operating this kind of stuff. But as a new person joining this kind of club, you must have access to a wide variety of folk where you're just like, wow, I need to learn this from this person. I need to learn that from that person. Can you talk about some of those experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the biggest thing for me, having left the hobby for so long and coming back and just being fascinated by the advancements in the electronics, I've been learning a lot from people. Uh, one of our members, uh, I think, uh, wrote the some of the standards for the NMRA for uh, LCC and DCC, and so he's he's truly one of the world's <laughs> experts in it. And so being able to kind of uh, you know lean in and listen to the conversations that are going on, you know, about why you know. Oh, things slow down on our layout sometimes because the enormity of it uh, has caused us to move into LCC to control a lot of our, you know, our, our side functions of signaling and the and the switch motors and stuff because we have so much going on that it was actually overwhelming the DCC. So I've been learning about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the limitations of DCC from a, uh, you know, a standpoint of <laughs> you got too big. Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's really neat. I, I, I'd say that's kind of one of the biggest things I've been learning and. Um, 
So it's it's bringing my knowledge up to a a modern standard from what I, you know, I, what I when I left in the in the 90s, left the hobby. It was it was very primitive in DC, and I remember the La Mesa Club in San Diego had the coolest thing ever because you could unplug a throttle and walk to another spot, plug it back <laughs> in, and and carry on. Yes, <laughs> and it was still all DC, but it was it was uh, ahead of its time. Uh, but now. Oh, just the, the advancements are, are just blowing my mind. It's really great. And I love, you know, having a sound decoder and making things sound real too. So it's been great to come back to it. So let's talk about Southern California traction, because I Yet. think you have such a beautiful epicenter of firstly people that are really very skilled in the modeling community, but also such a longstanding history. Well, I mean, compared to some areas, perhaps not that longstanding. But Traction in Southern California has a particular flavor. Can you talk a little bit about the SoCal Traction group? Uh, well, the Southern California Traction Club is a, a model railroad club that was uh, founded back in the 90s. And it's it 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 meets in a, a garage in West L.A., a great group, group of guys that are, are outstanding traction modelers. Uh, give a shout out to my friend George Huckabee, who's a... Uh, uh, I guess kind of renowned as one of the uh, the greatest uh, traction modelers on the West Coast, originally from Philly, though. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the club uh, it's a uh, it's a traveling layout. We we meet in the garage to to work on the stuff, but then we go to uh, uh, we go from uh, our garage in trailers to train shows in the region, and we also set up at Arnie's Trains uh, sometimes a little uh, traveling layout that we have. Uh, but uh, yeah, I welcome anyone to go uh, re- look us up online. We uh, we have an outstanding uh, modular city layout that is mm. uh, we would call tr- classic traction. A lot of uh, you know Pacific Electric and LA Railway stuff on it, um, and uh, then we also have a, a layout that is uh, a modern layout that we run uh, light rail vehicles. A lot of 3D printed stuff, mm. uh, which is kind of where I come into the hobby. I I, I do a lot of CAD design, and uh, I am the I guess chief cook and bottle washer of West Coast <laughs> and tra- uh, pardon me. Uh, West Coast Traction Supply, uh, mm-hmm. my Shapeway store. I make uh, LRV models and uh, and a lot of classic traction models, even stuff from like Illinois Terminal and and the like. So you mentioned so, that you're yeah. relatively new to the Pasadena Club, but obviously traction is traction what got you back into the hobby. Yeah, it really was. I actually moved a lot, and uh, I was always in one little apartment after another. And traction screamed at me because you can do a lot in a little space. You know, a little six and a half mm-hmm. inch radius curves and stuff. So I, I, uh, I'd always enjoyed the, the trolleys and stuff. And when I was a teenager, I was active at the uh, Orange Empire Railway Museum, which is, I guess, now the Southern California Railway Museum, mm. and was uh, a huge fan of the electrics. So the, uh, the, the modeling traction was kind of a natural because I could fit it in my space, and I loved uh, the Pacific Electric. And in terms of just the, the problems, let's, let's say it explicitly, in terms of the problems of traction, it is a very, it's perceived in the hobby at least, to be a high bar to enter into. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you say you come to it in part through kind of CAD design and these kind of elements, but in terms of the actual difficulty of traction, can you talk to that? Well, the, for me, the traction is is not so much difficult to, to build as it is to get it to operate smoothly. If you're running off of overhead wire, uh, you know, to me, a traction layout isn't really a traction layout if you forget to put up the wire. But uh, to each his own. But uh, really, I, I, I think that the, the whole thing is, is can you get your overhead to operate properly? And uh, thankfully, there's a few people that are, are really good at it. George Huckabee, the guy I mentioned, uh, included in that, where, uh, you know, if you if you get it dialed in, it runs beautifully. And with the new uh, with the advancements in DCC and, you know, the keep alives and stay alives and things, 
uh, you know, it used to be you were limited by the fact that your car would stutter and stop until you got your wire clean, uh, you know, because of just that single point of contact in the overhead. Uh, now with the, with the keep alive, the car just keeps right on rolling through a dirty spot. Mm. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's made it much more enjoyable because you're not chasing the car around the layout for the first two hours <laughs> trying to make sure it doesn't stall. Uh, so yeah. That has helped quite a lot, but yeah, the whole thing is is understanding the dynamics of the how the trolley pole travels the line. And once you get that dialed in, it's really not that difficult. And in terms of actually laying wire, we've had Mike Slater on periodically because he's been—I don't know how one would describe it—he's certainly been welcomed into a local traction group that he is in his area. And what I found yeah. fascinating through that is through—and look, Mike Slater is a very particular cat in the circumstance. He, he has a lot of knowledge within the hobby, so perhaps his barrier for entry is smaller than most. One of the fascinating things that Mike notes is once you have a good teacher, doing the wiring thing actually becomes very second nature. Was that was that your experience as well? Was the quality of your teacher associated with getting the, the cables in place important, or did you go through many different phases? I mean, talk about that. Well, for me, I you know have a, I joined this club because it was easier than building my layout at home. So I've been learning from the master uh, George Huckabee hmm. about how to hang the wire, and uh, so it my learning curve was relatively short because I had a guy standing next to me that was truly renowned in it. And even when I was a teenager in San Diego at the San Diego Club, they were building a traction line on the layout, and uh, a guy that you know rivals George in his skill level was uh, a fellow by. Name of Parker Williams, who mm. installed the wire on that layout. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but his technique lives on. And we, one of the members of our, our traction club here, uh, also studied under Parker and has uh, copied his tools. So I, I have two two masters uh, that I learned from. Uh, and uh, if you ever get a chance, check out the blog of uh, Dan D Sparks, <laughs> and you'll find my friend's blog about how he's built his traction layout and how he hangs the overhead wire. And it's a technique that is, is really great. It keeps it under tension, so you don't have a lot of deflection when the pole pushes up on it. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I would check out that blog if you're interested in learning how to do it. So you're really echoing Mike's latest point, that the quality, you need to find these masters, learn from them, and then traction will not seem as elusive, I guess, as it is for many folks in the hobby. Interesting. Uh, Absolutely. But there's also a website uh, called Trolleyville, uh, where there's a, a good number of tutorials, uh, you know, and, and little uh, things that you can print out that explain the theory behind it and the uh, and, you know, what what exactly you have to do to get your pole to track right on the overhead. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Check out Trolleyville. The schoolhouse articles are the ones that uh, that will walk a newbie right through the process. Let's talk about 3D printing in the hobby, because this yeah. is a topic that I find fascinating. I think the rise of 3D printers has been certainly tracked by a number of participants in Model Rail Radio. I mean, personally, I, I reference my co-worker continuously because he is continuously using his uh, 3D printer and occasionally throw I throw a few models in his direction. Could you talk a little bit about your experience with 3D printing? Firstly, how you got into it and your connection with 3D printing in the hobby? Yeah, absolutely. I, I started off uh, thinking, my goodness, there you know these models of uh, these old Pacific Electric cars are far too expensive. I wish there was a way I, I could crank them out again. And so, I, uh, I taught myself how to use a, a freeware that's online called Tinkercad, and it's it's such a simple program. Uh, you don't even have to download it to your computer. Uh, but with Tinkercad, you you get a, a selection of basic shapes, squares, cubes. Uh, um, you know, spheres and the like, and each one can be toggled between being a positive or a negative 
you know, either a solid or a void, and you combine them. So if you, say, put a, a, a cylinder through a square, turn the cylinder into a void, and then combine it with the solid square, you then have a, a you know, a cube, rather, uh, that mm-hmm. has a, a tunnel through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to give you, you know, just kind of the basics of it. But uh, from that, you know, I, I kind of have maxed out how to use that program. <laughs> I have a ton of models now that I've designed using it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can crank them out all day long now, uh, you know, build a model of a Hollywood car for less than a hundred bucks. And uh, yeah, I've got uh, freight motors and all kinds of other things that I've designed on it that are, are really, uh, you know, simple kits that are, are, you know, pieced together quickly and a beginner can do it. Uh, you know, you just got to paint and decal it, which, you know, if you got a, another, like it's one of those other things that helps if you have a master that can show you how to do it. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, even still you can, you can paint it up with uh, craft store paint and it'd probably look just fine regardless. So John Carity in the chat is asking, you've talked about the software in terms of the actual 3d printing hardware. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, you know what I do, what I started with before I ever got my own 3d printer, I would design stuff and then send it off to Shapeways to get mm-hmm. printed. And my, my web store still lives there. It's, uh, you know, you can, you go online and order any one of my kits, but the, uh, I, I eventually bought a printer for home use. It's a, a machine called a, a AnyCubic Photon. Mm. Uh, and these things are dirt cheap. You can pick them up for a couple hundred bucks and the, you can buy bottles of resin for, you know, I think what, 40 bucks for a, uh, a liter. And uh, from that liter, I can make dozens of cars. So mm. I've been, I've been gradually working on, on getting that photon dialed in to be able to print my models at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit hit and miss in that. Uh, the photon does have some limitations. It's a, a machine where you pour in a liquid resin and it, it shines the UV light at it to cure it. Certainly. Uh, but uh, there there are limitations, and I, I think Will O'Malley, one of the guys at the Northwest Traction Club, has been learning also with me that it's difficult to get a print that's totally clean on all sides. Hmm. Uh, so I, I'm I'm gradually figuring it out. Uh, I can print my light rail vehicles now uh, on that without too much trouble, and can crank those out, you know, two or three in a day. But uh, it's <laughs> rather difficult to figure it out how to get your orientation on the build plate correct to uh, keep from having a lumpy, distorted model. So is that a gravity problem and just that the, the it doesn't actually harden fully as it's being printed? Is that the problem? Well, what it, what it seems to be is that resin pools on the upper surfaces of the print and mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of the scattered UV light from the layers below it get through and cure what's pooled on the upper surfaces. So, uh, you know, anything that has a pool of resin on it, as the stuff below it hardens, also hardens the pool of resin. So mm. you're left with kind of a, a lumpy lake of resin on the top that hardens gradually. And uh, so you have to orient everything to where it drains. And that is a trick when you have a multi a multifaceted model, uh, you know, to try and keep everything up out of the out of the goo. And do you have a secondary curing process or does all the curing actually exists within the printer itself? Well, it, it gets it to a nearly cured state, but then I, I pop it into a, a little uh, fingernail drying box. Mm-hmm. You can pick them up for 25 bucks on Amazon. It's a cheap little UV light box that you put it in and uh, press the button. It goes for half an hour and the model comes out rock hard. Mm. Yeah, so you do have a secondary process as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So what kind of, I mean, you talk about tuning. What kind of steps have you done in tuning that process with your existing printer? Well, for me, it, it's been realizing that the, uh, they call it a FEP film, F-E-P. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's the clear film at the bottom of the resin vat that the UV light shines through. Uh, you have to keep that at a, a high tension 
Uh, you can mm. pluck it like a guitar string. I mean, if you twang it, it it's uh, <laughs> it has to be super tight. Uh, the other things you have to do is making sure you have enough supports on your model to keep it from uh, bowing and bending. Uh, and uh, uh, I even, in some cases, add internal supports within the model uh, that that keep uh, the walls of the of the car from deflecting as it pops off that FEP film each time. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a tricky process, and there there has been so much trial and error. I, I think you know I probably burned a hundred bucks in resin just just with the you know things that went in the garbage can while I figured it out. Interesting. But uh, once you get it dialed in, you all you have to do is just pour resin in the vat and press play. It's uh, you can then start churning out tons of stuff. But uh, you know, for for somebody that builds models and does super detailing. Uh, having one of these printers is one of the most valuable things. Uh, you know, I, I buy a ton of detail parts, you know, from CalScale and things mm-hmm. like that for my mainline models. But uh, for things that aren't offered, I can go into Tinkercad, draw them, and print them. You know, in I can print them in the hundreds. So, I, I, I you know, if I mess one up, <laughs> I can just clip another one off the sprue and off I go. Uh, it's been invaluable to me for, for getting my, uh, my fleet of heavyweights and things uh, dialed in with... Uh, you know, real correct roof vents and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, for anybody that's thinking about getting one of these uh, printers, definitely do it. And, uh, you know, despite the bullet drop 250 bucks, I mean, you spend that much on a, a locomotive anyway. So try it. You know, it, it's you can't you got nothing to lose. and You can always just put the thing on eBay if you want to end up hating it. So in that vein, is this your first 3D printer or did you buy 3D printers leading up to this purchase? No, this is the first one. Interesting. Uh, I and there, you know, there's several different types. You got the kinds that shoot out a, a ribbon of uh, molten plastic, uh, and those ones are great for underbodies and things that need uh, good structural rigidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've thought about buying one of those just for doing my underframes. But uh, yeah, for for me, I jumped into it with this uh, with this photon printer, and it's been uh, the only one I've needed so far. I, I would like to get a, one with a larger build plate, but the price goes up astronomically mm. for the uh, the larger ones. How long have you had this printer for specifically? I got mine about a year, year and a half ago now. Okay, okay. So do you foresee, just as planned obsolescence seem to be so central to everything we buy now, do you foresee it having a lifespan where maybe in two, three years' time you drop a similar amount of money or maybe slightly more money to you know get the latest technology, or do you think that this will you know last you for longer than that? Well, these ones, from what I gather, the, the, the screen has a finite, lifespan to it and mm. so at that point you can you can drop uh, some cash on a new screen and and upgrade it or not upgrade it but just keep it running <laughs> or you can go out and upgrade and and buy the the next latest greatest and i suspect by the time i wear this one out it'll be time for the latest and greatest because the, <laughs> the the whole thing is uh you know it's it's like the smartphones coming out back when you know 10 years ago you know every every couple of months the latest and greatest would just be so much better than the one you're currently having your pocket. So yeah, why not upgrade? Interesting. You know, especially, especially with me when I'm, you know, doing production and, and printing things for friends. Uh, it's, uh, it's really great. You know, I can, I can, the thing will basically pay for itself. And the printing things for friends is really critical. You mentioned that a member of your club is also actively printing stuff with you. Can you talk about that process? Uh, well, uh, I, he's not a member of my club, but we, we correspond quite a lot online though. It's uh, Willem Alley uh, mm-hmm. with the, uh, I think he's been on your show once or twice before with mm-hmm. Andy Breaker. Oh, uh, yes, but, yes. Uh, yeah, Will has, uh, he's a member of the uh, Northwest Trashing Club there uh, around the Illinois area. And uh, Will, uh, he jumped in with both feet and bought three of these printers at once. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, 
Yeah, he's, he's been going through the motions of trying to figure out the best way to orient his models. He's been trying to come up with, a, uh, I believe, a Illinois Terminal uh, Express motor. And uh, it's uh, it's been a lot of trial and error there, too, for him. So we're, we're learning together. So we, we commiserate online together. Buying <laughs> three uh, in one go. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he jumped in with both feet. And uh, I, I hope he can make a go of it. I really do. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I, I'll give him that. Would you advise people to do that or would you advise, I mean, it's interesting the notion of having, I guess, based on the size of things that you want to print, but in the cost of getting a slightly larger build plate, is the Delta in like, I mean, would he be normally spending like $2,000 to get what space he can with three of the same at 250? I'm just wondering what the, what the scale is there, or maybe he's just easily excitable. Well, to keep that resolution that you can get from a photon, uh, you know, the, the pixels per inch, I guess you could say, mm. the uh, the price to go to a larger printer uh, is so, so much higher. Uh, mm. And I don't know exactly why. Uh, but, yeah, Will, I think his his thought was going into a, uh, you know, a production cycle where he could crank out models, uh, you know, and retail them. Mm. Uh, not so much that he, he wanted, uh, you know, a, a, a larger model. He just wanted to be able to pr- produce a lot of the same one at once. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So in terms of the investigation, how did you come to this particular 3D printer? Uh, for me, it was, it was listening to uh, actually people on, on this podcast and on Lionel's uh, mm-hmm. discussing the, uh, their printers and, uh, you know, and then again doing research online, seeing what, uh, what other people were recommending and seeing what kind of support uh, network was available for each of them. Uh, when I found the Facebook group for the, uh, for the, the Anycubic, uh, uh, just tons, tons of information out there. And it's helped me tremendously. So I, I just jumped in with that one because of all the printers, I think it's the most user-friendly that anybody can can jump into with uh, very little experience. Mm. Do you have a home layout at all, or do you just keep keeping the hobby through your vicarious you know, modules and uh, the Pasadena Club? Well, I, I have a two by six uh, start of a layout, and it tends to be where I throw crap. <laughs> pardon, Very good. pardon the French. <laughs> but the dumping uh, ground layout. I understand. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got piles of boxes on it. There's track on it somewhere, but uh, I haven't seen the track in a while. <laughs> Enough said. Enough said. Yeah, I need to get back into it. But yeah, I've got a, a room in the new house here where I'm, I'm planning to build a layout, and it's just a matter of time before that happens. Um, I just have to actually buckle down and do it but when i've got these great layouts nearby oh yeah the, the reason to go out and build my own is is slim so certainly i can i can enjoy what's near near me yeah but you seem to be i mean the nature of building a home layout as a lone wolf modeler is so much more difficult than the nature of building a home layout when you have something like the pasadena club and oh, yeah. i think what's fascinating is the lone wolf modelers and i look in my travels i go to a number of lone wolf modelers places in fact, what my favorite thing, which typically happens in the Midwest of the US, but it happens periodically, is just socially you discover that the person that you're interacting with is also a model railroader. And I had this experience in East Lansing, Michigan. I was working with an academic there and I went to his house and he said, oh, by the way, <laughs> we wandered down into the basement and spent two hours looking at his lab. So... I think what fascinates me is that the wisdom that you get through things like the Pasadena Club could actually influence how you build your home layout. Can you talk a little bit about the space of this room? Have you got any plans currently, or are you just leaving it up in the air? It's I, I keep 
coming up with new ideas for it. But uh, my my current thought it's it's basically a child's bedroom. So mm-hmm. I've got uh, you know almost about a ten by ten or ten by twelve room. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I had planned on doing was a double deck layout where the lower deck is more or less uh, storage. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the blogs I follow online, a guy by the name of Tony Thompson, who models the Southern Pacific. Mm-hmm. He has this great system where it's a, a staging yard that is a drawer, and mm. it's it's an inverted transfer table, basically, mm-hmm. where instead of having a single track that runs back and forth, the entire yard runs back and forth and indexes to the the connect the one connecting track. Mm-hmm. Uh, great idea. But uh, So my, my thought was is I would have a switching layout with a, a little cityscape with traction on it, uh, and... Uh, then, you know, as, as I would switch out one train, I would send it back into the dungeon on the transfer table down below and then pull the next train out and, uh, and basically rearrange the cars using the next, uh, the next group off the transfer table. It is a very interesting dynamic. I've seen a couple of layouts, and my understanding is longtime participant Matt Goodman also has a component to his layout uh, like that. And it's a, the size of the transfer table is always the most interesting part of that. Because some people, as you seem to be describing quite a large transfer table, actually moving substantial, you know, locomotive rolling stock kind of configurations. Is that what you're planning? How, how many cars are going to be on the transfer table, do you think? Well, I'm thinking probably six or seven tracks mm-hmm. on the table itself. And then uh, each one, each little train, I think, would probably be in the neighborhood of about uh, 10 cars in mm-hmm. a locomotive and caboose. Not, not huge. I just don't have the room to do an uh, uh, empire here. Certainly a reasonable uh, yeah, size, uh, though. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It would be it would be very tight curves. Uh, you know, nothing nothing more than a GP would be able to run on it. Uh, I, I don't think an SD would be able to handle the curves I'm planning. Hmm. Uh, very very much a switching layout. Very industrial. Uh, might even be you know forty four tonners and things like that. Hmm. Well, you paint an amazing picture, Andrew. You paint an amazing picture. I'm really glad. You were one of these posters on the Facebook page where I'm like, I just can't wait to have a conversation with Andrew on the podcast. (laughs) Thank thank you you. very much for calling in. And thank you also for participating in the Facebook group, because I think it's a very interesting community. I mean, what interests me in particular is how the different podcasts, and obviously the NMRA, but also now how people have individual, like people have pages on Facebook for their layouts. So they post to their Facebook layout page and then they'll post that into Model Rail Radio or the NMRA or you know, Lionel's podcast or all these other places. So Facebook is a thing for model railroading. It's so interesting. You could spend days just perusing various groups and this kind of stuff. But the way that you've embraced uh, our Facebook page, thank you very much for your for your posts and your interaction, and thank you for calling in today. Hey, Tom, I've really appreciated your podcast all the, all the time I've been listening to it. It gets me back and forth to work every day. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. Not at all. Kind of. I don't know. I don't think I could ever stop doing Model Wow Radio. My wife tries to portray this thing in the future where I stop doing Model Wow Radio and like Mike Slater takes over, all these kind of things. I just people would track me down. I don't think I can escape from this podcast. But Andrew, thank you very much for your kind words. Please stay on the podcast as long as you can. We have Will Merrill coming up. He has a lot of overlap to some of the stuff you've been discussing, so feel free to jump back in if anything comes up. But thank you for calling in today. Great. Thanks, Tom. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I've just reviewed the records I haven't spoken to for more than five years. I I guess we've been connected on Facebook, Will Merrill, so I guess I feel I've had some connection with you, but 
that's an awfully long time. What has been going on with the model railroading hobby since you last called into model rail radio? Well, there's a couple of things been going on. The main thing is my primary participation at this point is through uh, our club. Mm. I was listening interest with interest to what Andrew was saying because, uh, yeah, I, I participate through uh, a club. Uh, our club is uh, Keystone N-Track. Mm-hmm. So we're an N-Track layout, an N-Track club here in the north side of Pennsylvania, in the north side of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And that's my main participation is through that club. And uh, we were in our, you know, we had a clubhouse in a location for five years up until the end of March of this year mm-hmm. when they decided to renovate the place and they didn't have space for us anymore. Mm-hmm. So we got the heave-ho. We, we thought we were going into storage. We thought. We didn't have any choice. We thought we were going to go into storage. And then at the last minute, we found a place. And uh, I, I think it's actually a better place. So mm. we've got a five-year lease and a new uh, a new arrangement of our layout. And uh, we're up and running, and it's open house season now. So uh, well, congratulations. we're doing real good. Congratulations. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about – I mean, we've had various people on – We've talked about, firstly, the kind of kick in the gut associated with we're going to have to get out of the space. But can you talk a little bit about the pack up and also finding the new space? Well, we're for a long time, we've been on the lookout for a new space. Hmm. The space we had was uh, pretty good. It was small. It was about 20 by 20 or thereabouts, which is not huge, but it was a good sized layout. Hmm. But it was miles from where people live it was out and you know it was an hour drive for most of us Mm. or not an hour a half an hour drive up to the clubhouse but it was substantial and uh because the the difficulty of course is every place that has space wants to rent it to you at retail space (laughs) uh, at retail rates and we do okay, but we don't, we can't afford retail rates, mm. you know? So finding a place that was, that had good public access so we could do our open houses that had, you know, a space where we could, where we could actually get into the place, you know, um, at the times that we needed to be there mm. and, and, um, all the various things, you know, I mean, our, our demands weren't great, but they were, we had to have certain things, Certainly. you know, to, to make it work for what we do. So finding a location was hard. And then, um, I don't know who actually made the contact, but, uh, some, you know, literally we were getting ready to take our layout from the old location to storage. Mm. We we're all going to come in Saturday and on Friday, we got the word that we had a new space. Mm. And it, it happened just that fast. How was and the space, space found? The space is very good. We're very happy with it. How was the space found? I, I don't know who, like I said, it was not me who found it. Mm. Um, you know, I, all of us were looking for space, mm-hmm. you know, looking for, you know, some unused upper room in some, you know, <laughs> factory or place like that an old schoolhouse or anything like that and uh they all 
think it's worth something. Mm. So let's talk about the you new know? space and let's that paradox associated. And I know certainly locally, a number of clubs are forced to form charities and do a variety of different things to try to firstly identify themselves as being different than a commercial space. But can you talk a little bit about the space that you found? And also, I mean, if you don't know how the space was found, I guess, how how were you able to get the space with the, the costs at a rate that was reasonable? Somebody had the right conversation. Um, there's... Best I understand it, the mm. the building that we're in, the guy had some retail space in the in the basement, mm. and he was renovating it. You know, who the people that were in the space prior to us had left. It's basically an apartment house, and we're in the basement, mm. and that works for us. So mm. it's one flight down. It's not quite wheelchair accessible. Mm. That that would be the only improvement we could make. But it's not our building, so we can't make that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it it is a short half flight down, you know, to get into the place. But we get, you know, access all the time. And uh, so the guy, you know, he wanted us. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what conversation was had, but uh, the guy said, yeah, I'd like you guys to have this space. Mm. And he was you know, he could meet our price. You know, we did have a, a budget for that. We were able, we are able through dues and, you know, uh, the sh- we get paid uh, when we go out to most shows. Mm-hmm. You know, we go out and display our, we have a travel layout mm. that we take to shows. And so we make some money from that. Not, mm. a, not a huge amount, not enough for a commercial space, but we do have income. Mm. And because of that, we do have a budget for uh, that. And so we could afford um, a certain amount. And he was willing to work with us at that amount. And uh, so I'm I'm still not 100% clear what, what he gets out of the deal. But uh, he's happy. We're happy. Everybody's happy. It's a good deal. <laughs> so can you just, you've described the space as a basement and apartment complex. But can you, can you describe the physical nature of the space? How big is it? Um, it's about, I would say it's about 20 by 25, maybe 30. Okay. It was slightly different in shape than our, uh, old space, mm-hmm. uh, um, which is where having a modular layout really was helpful mm. because in the end we actually wound up, um, having to add a couple of modules. So we wind up with more space. Mm. Uh, um, and it's, it's a, uh, I, I think it's a more interesting arrangement mm. than what we had. So, it, you know, we, we were able to take most of our layout, which was finished, you know, which was scenic and in good shape that way. And that's now in the new space. And mm. then we have about three new modules that we're in the process of uh, decorating. We've got track down on them so we can run the whole layout. And uh, we've got some possibilities and we're, we're busy discussing with each other about what kind of <laughs> things we want to put in this, in these, uh, you know, we've got about a eight foot space and then another four foot space that are currently unscenicked. Hmm. So talking with so, Andrew, he, he mentioned, and certainly local Silicon Valley lines is the same. Do you have public running sessions that people can stop by and see the layout? And I mean, is that part of what you do? Yes. 
we're always open. Uh, our regular meeting night is Tuesday night, mm-hmm. and we're always welcome visitors to come in at that time. Occasionally we get a few, but you know, mostly people checking it out. Mm-hmm. And then on many weekends, you know, we're coming into open house season. We run open houses. You know, the layout's open right now. You know, <laughs> as we speak. Um, and uh, I'll be going over tomorrow to to take a turn at running some things and stuff. But uh, so yeah, on on many weekends. Um, November and December and January, we traditionally have open houses and sometimes some other times as we see fit. Mm. So we have a permanent layout in the clubhouse and we have that open for open houses and people, you know, and one of the things we have is um, we have club owned trains that are set up so that if there's a, a kid or a prospective member or something like that, who would like to take a turn running a train, we can put a throttle in their hand and they can run, run it around the layout some and see what we do. Mm. Um, and then, and we do that uh, sometimes on the travel layout also. So truth is we understand that the, the way we uh, continue to exist is to bring in new members. Mm. And uh, so we're always very conscious of, of, you know, trying to, be available to the public um, and be attractive to them. You never know who's going to be sparked. Certainly. And you mentioned shows as well. How many shows a year would you do? Fewer than years in, in years past. Um, Mm. The shows that we can go to are fewer than they once were. Um, And that's, that's a thing we think about from time to time, but we probably do eight eight to 10 a year, Mm. maybe more down a little from i think we used to do 20 shows a year and um we're not we're not at that level anymore Hmm. but we still have a few reliable shows that we go to and uh you know and things like that and and that's enjoyable you know it's enough that we we have a trailer that we carry our uh, travel layout in you know so we, we can go and um we're good enough at it now and practiced enough and designed well enough that from the time we roll in to the time we have trains running is an hour and a half, two hours at the worst. Hmm. In terms of the NMRA, the regionals, and occasionally if it's in the broader area, you're, did your club go to the uh, national? As a club, we often don't because, okay. frankly, they're uh, it's fairly rare that they're in, in our area hmm. that, that much. Sometimes, but um, there are, are some uh, Greenberg shows that we mm-hmm. occasionally go to um, and stuff like that. A lot of our shows are actually um, smaller things. We do the, you know, the local firehouse. We do the local uh, Apple Festival at the church <laughs> kind of thing. You know, yes. we have a couple of uh, you know regular shows that we do each year that work out well for us. Many of our members will go to to the, some of the big national shows. Mm. Um, we have a couple of stalwarts who always go up to uh, Springfield and, mm-hmm. you know, and Syracuse and some of those. And some of us like to go to the uh, RPM meets when we can, things like that. But as a club, not so much. Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk about n as a phenomenon. Now, you are an n club. 
Does, is there, yes. Are there in-track... I mean, when I think of the National, there'll always be an in-track thing at the National. There'll always be people... Can, well, at least the Nationals I've been to. How does that work with N-Track across the US? Are you part of a... I mean, is there something like the NMRA associated with N-Track layouts, or is it just a standard that you adhere to? There are there are N-Track organizations. You know, if you go... If you type it into Google, you'll get... Uh, there, there is a, you know, a standards body <laughs> that uh, sets the standards for um, what N-Track is, and there are... You know, and they keep track of some of the clubs around the areas and things like that. Uh, so, yes, it is an organization, and it is a, a particular set of standards. Mm-hmm. And if you build to that set of standards, you can probably show up at any particular show and be able to uh, run with your module. Mm-hmm. That's the theory. <laughs> and in, I think, for the most part, that may actually be true. Um, I think it would be a little rude to just show up and not let the organizers know you're coming. Without question. Because a lot of times these layouts need to be designed beforehand so we know who's setting up where. And if you just show up, that may not be, you know, they may or may not be able to fit you in Hmm. from a logistical point of view. But from a standards point of view, they should all play. So it's it's not like the NRA where you pay a membership fee. There's no N-Track organization where you pay a membership fee and then you get benefits through that. Not that I'm aware of, no. I don't believe there's any such a thing as that. Any particular club, of course, will have, you know, dues and things like that. Certainly. Uh, Our club certainly does. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. um, So now you've got the space, you've you've talked about space as something that needs to be filled. What are your own thoughts? I mean, you mentioned that there's an eight foot section. You mentioned that this new environment, are these things earmarked? Is it discussed? Will it be given to a specific person and they will build their you know particular module to fit that space? How does that work? See, as a club, now we've been together as a club for more than 20, 25 years. Mm. And one of the things that we often do at some of the shows that we go, do is we'll set up a sale table. So as a result, over the years, you know, people have given us uh, stuff. Uh, members have gotten tired of things and contributed <laughs> to the club, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So we have a substantial um, collection of stuff, and sometimes we'll put it on the uh, on the sale table, mm-hmm. and sometimes we'll incorporate it into new modules. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we'll sit around, we'll paw through the boxes, and see which things look good there. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of do in the process of doing that with this space is we sit around and discuss what kinds of industries we want to put here. Hmm. Well, we could extend this track and, you know, cut it in here, or we could put some sidings over this way, different things like that. And, um, mostly we're holding off, uh, the construction, you know, the additional construction until the, uh, open house season is open. We don't want to risk having the layout <laughs> out of service right now. So the layout runs well right now. So we're not going to tear anything up just yet. But we do talk almost every Tuesday about what we might put there and things like that. Uh, one of the things we're trying to look at is uh, um, how to get more operations 
potential. Because unfortunately, one of the dirty little secrets of N-Track is a lot of N-Track tends to be, you know, put the modules in a big, you know, rectangular box and run trains around in circles, mm. which is great for showing them off to the public. Mm-hmm. But after a while, it get, you know, a railroad that isn't doing anything except running in circles does tend to get a little tiresome. Mm. So operations is sort of, uh, you know, sort of the, if you read the literature and a lot of stuff where model railroading in general seems to be headed to me, at least is towards more and more operations mm. and, uh, operating, you know, modeling, not only what the railroad looks like, but what it does, mm. you know, what does the prototype actually do? And modeling that is sort of where, where, where modelers seem to be maturing towards in, in a lot of ways. And in many ways, N-Scale, that's something of an uphill um, battle with N-Scale. You know, we're just barely on the right side of physics. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it can be hard. N-Scale runs very well these days. Mm. But switching takes a steady hand, mm. you know? So some of these things are a little challenging and stuff. So we're thinking in terms of what can we add to make operations more more interesting uh, so that on the nights when we're not showing to the public, we can uh, have something interesting to do for ourselves. Mm. So that's why we're thinking very carefully about what kinds of industries we want to add. You know, how does it fit in with uh, other things that we already have? Um, stuff like that. It's an interesting challenge and we're, we're, it definitely occupies some of our thinking. Certainly. Certainly. Does that answer the question you I asked? I think it does. I think, it, I mean, the nature, what you describe, I guess what you're describing is that the eight feet is not a fresh space. It's actually a space that has already kind of community history and physical things. And yeah, the, the nature of the hobby moving towards operation, I think, it's just about finding a particular niche. There's a large group of folk that come to this thing through professionally. I mean, the rise of the kind of project managers that become, you know, layout builders and operators and consultants and this kind of stuff is really fascinating. But yeah, I do hear exactly where you're coming from, Will. And it's wonderful to have the chance to chat with you again. It's been vastly too long since we last chatted. It has been. I just, it's been difficult to schedule it, you know. Without question. And sometimes I notice, yeah. you know, I'll notice Saturday afternoon, oh, there was a <laughs> chance, and I missed it. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I'm busy. And even today, I could have been over at the layout doing an open house. And I chose to, I saw this opportunity and enough time to get things ready. And so I'm here, and I'm happy for that. Well, certainly, Will, I am very pleased that you took a few moments out of your uh, busy Saturday and we had the chance to chat. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for calling in. Yes. Hopefully it won't be five years until the next time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank yes. you, Will. Bye-bye. Well, a somewhat shorter model rail radio, but Quality over quantity, I think, here. Absolutely wonderful to have a chance to chat for the first time with Andrew. And also Will Merrill, long-time participant, 
Five years is a long time. So, Model Rail Radio over the festive season, let us just say, I think I have two more recordings planned for this year. And as I noted in my chat uh, with uh, Andrew in particular, I am going to be in Southern California for a good quantity of next year. And this hasn't in any way defined itself yet, but my hope will be that I will be back in Northern California for Saturdays. But if that doesn't happen, I'm going to have to get the recording equipment down in Southern California as well. So it's going to be all very interesting associated with how this thing comes together. But one thing that will be happening is that definitely we'll be recording some bottle rail radio because as today shows, the ability to catch up with folk and talk to new folk is really, really important. So if people will bear with me through the travel, I have to send out a particular shout out to Terry Terrence. I will not be able to attend Terry's last operating session next weekend. And the stuff that's drawing me to Southern California is pretty all consuming. So I've already apologized personally and directly to Terry Terrence, but I want to say in this recording, I'm genuinely sorry that I won't be able to see his last operation on his layout. Uh, because obviously Terry has been a long time participant in his layout in my mind, at least. And I've seen various video footage has certainly been an active contributor in my enjoyment of the conversation, the hobby. I was thinking, as I look at my podcasting space, particularly when I talk to folks like Will, I think to myself, I could put modules in here quite comfortably. I'm looking at the bookshelves and things and thinking, hmm, I'd probably have at least 10, maybe 15 feet of module running space around here. So the Marklin is also really close to my um, general personage. So that is another thing that will no doubt be coming. But like I say, for a good portion of next year down in L.A., Hopefully back here for recording times. But thanks to uh, to the folks for participating. We've had long-time participant John Garrity on the call as well. John, I'm going to be spending, I think, exactly one full day in Sydney on the trip to Australia. But my hope is to catch up with uh, Jim Gifford and maybe Ross. Maybe. Let's see if that can happen uh, when I'm in South Australia. But yeah, certainly the end of the year will be spent flying. Well, not necessarily flying, but driving at some quality speed through parts of Australia, uh, ending up in uh, an area of South Australia, or Dinga, which is very, very close to Jim Gifford's part of the world, but also a part of the world that my wife dearly loves as well. So thanks to the participants today for, uh, for a really interesting and good to catch up Model Rail Radio. And thanks to the folks for listening as well. Good morning. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Good night.